What we're going to be doing tonight and for the next couple of weeks is walking through discipleship, which is something that's talked about in the church a lot, but we don't necessarily always emphasize it the way we should. Uh, discipleship is vital. In fact, the disciples who followed Jesus were quite literally his disciples, and they were sent to go make other disciples. And we're going to do that by looking at the life of Peter. We're going to look at Peter, and some of you are familiar with Peter. We're going to look at Peter's life uh, for three weeks, three to four weeks, and we're going to look at what God does with him, what Jesus does with him to turn him into a disciple that then in turn makes Disciples. Now, as you're finding that, I want to go ahead and get your notes out. I have a few things I want you to take home tonight, a few things with you that I'm praying will impact you for the rest of the week. But before we get to the title tonight, I want to tell you, yesterday I was thinking about the first mission trip that I ever went on. I went to Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Anybody ever been to Honduras? Amen? That's right. Dakota's done his tours. This is no joke. On our second Honduras trip, we all had a sickness go around. It was awful. It was brutal because of something we ate. It just went wrong. It was just an anomaly. And guess who did not get sick out of the whole trip and ate off everybody else's plate too? Your director, Dakota Tucker. (laughs) Talk about a stomach of iron. I was thinking about my first trip to Honduras, and it was in 2017, and this is my first trip. I was on staff, so I led the first trip I went on. Don't ask me how that happened. And I was uh, getting ready for the trip, and I was recruiting like crazy. I mean, I was recruiting people to go, man. I had my sales pitch. I was like, listen, what you doing with your summer? You need to come to Honduras. They were like, is it awesome? I was like, I have no clue. I've never been. (laughs) But come find out with me. We're going to learn one way or another. And we sure got killed in soccer. But I'll never forget, one of the guys that I've recruited uh, to go on the trip, was he was awesome. I'm not going to say his name tonight, and he would be okay with me telling the story. I'm not going to say his name tonight. We'll call him Chip. Is that okay? We call him Chip? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) We're going to call him Chip and be respectful of him. I recruited him on this trip, and I was telling him all about the trip, man. I was breaking down, like, Peyton, what was going to happen on the trip? And I was like, yeah, man, we're going to be sharing Jesus. We're going to be going into mountains. We're going to be going door to door. And, man, Chip, man, Chip was not a great listener. <laughs> so I was told him, I was like, listen, here's all that we're going to be doing. And you know how he hit me? He was like, okay, okay, I got you. That sounds good, yeah. And we get to the trainings, where we start walking through what to do on this trip and best how to prepare. I'll never forget the thing that we emphasized because Hannah led this trip with me, the thing we emphasized was don't go anywhere alone. It's a simple concept. It's not hard to grasp a hold of, right? Fairly easy. Don't go anywhere alone. I guess Chip was not listening in that training because we land at the Honduran airport and we have not been off the plane five minutes and Chip is gone. (laughs) Hannah looks at me. She does a head count. She says, where's Chip? (laughs) And I look at her. I go, baby, I don't know. And this man, bless his heart, I love him to death. He came back to us. He had to go and stop at one of the stores in the airport to buy something. Went all by himself. Five minutes off the plane. So this is, this is kind of how it went with Chip. Great guy. Not the best listener. God bless you. Halfway through the trip, we're tired, right? We're exhausted. It's hot. You don't wear shorts when you go to Honduras. Culturally, you wear pants. We all got scrubs on. Amen. So my nursing majors are like, that's right. I only buy scrubs when I'm going to Honduras. We got our pants on, we're sweaty, we're hot, we're in the mountains, we're going door to door. And like, it's tough. Like, it's, we're not dying, but like, it's a little tough, you know, especially if it's your first trip. And I look over at Chip. Chip's got this look on his face, man. He looks like he's about to fall over. <laughs> like, he's a little pale in the face, he's a little sweaty. We've been working, and I come over to him, and I'm like, that's so what I said to him, I wrote it down. I said, Chip, I was like, Chip, come over here. You know, I pulled him aside. I didn't want to talk to him in front of everybody, so I pulled him aside. I said, Chip, man. You good, bro? You good? <laughs> and, he, and he looked at me, and he gave me the most honest, whew, no. 
<laughs> so honest about it, man. Some people were like, yeah, man, I'm straight. I'll be all right. You know, he was like, no. <laughs> and uh, what he said to me in this moment, I love him to death. What he said to me in this moment, I've never forgotten because I think it should ring true for some of us tonight. He says, this is tough. I say, yeah, Chip, that's what we talked about in the trainings. Remember, my God, like we talked about this. And then he says this. He goes, I don't think I really knew what I was signing up for. And I've never forgotten that moment. And here's why. I got to see firsthand one of my buddies make a commitment without first counting the cost of that commitment. And one of the things I wrote down that I want to give you tonight is this. Making a commitment without counting the cost is not a commitment. It's a false claim. It's a false claim. I believe this is the very reason we have so many Christians, yet not as many disciples. Be honest with you tonight. We're going to get into it. We're going to be real and honest at the view. We're going to be real. We're going to be raw. I believe this is why we have so many fans, but not as many followers. How many of you know there's a big difference between being a fan and being a follower? I believe this is the reason why many people make a commitment to Christianity, but are not necessarily understanding the commitment to be a disciple. Because there's a big difference. Tyler even said it last week on our panel. He said, we make a commitment to Christ before often counting the cost of that commitment. Now for Chip, bless his heart, the mission trip was fine when we were at the bed and breakfast and playing card games. <laughs> like Chip was good. He wasn't pale then. Like he was having fun. We were playing Uno. It was great. But the minute we got into the mountains, the minute we were at the middle of the day, and it was fourth day and we were hot and we were tired, his commitment was tested. And I got to tell you, for a lot of us, man, being a disciple is cool as long as it means coming and listening to sermons, right? Being a disciple is cool if it means I can come, I can be a consumer, I can just kind of get my little word and then I can be out. But when you really commit to Christ and then you face trials out in the world, you get persecuted on your college campus. You get rejected like we did at University of Memphis today when I'm just trying to give out some Oreos. When you get rejected over your faith, it gets a little bit harder to continue to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is why you see so many D groups not make it. If I can be very honest with you, I'm going to talk about discipleship groups, and this is why a lot of D groups fizzle out, why a lot of them give in, flake. I think a big reason is because, and I'm not down on anybody. I am this way many times myself, but listen, a lot of us commit to a D group. Let's be really honest. We commit to a D group. We commit to being held accountable to our Bible reading, but then the minute that somebody really does hold us accountable to our Bible reading, we don't really like that. We want to be a part of a group where we're held accountable to sin, but then when we're actually held accountable to that sin, we don't really like that. See, I've been pastoring with college students and doing ministry with college students for six years, and what I've learned very clearly, it's a nugget of wisdom for you, college students do not like being told what to do. They love being able to share what they think they should do, but they don't always like being told to do. Guess what discipleship is? It's Jesus quite literally leading you and calling the shots. And then whoever your D group leader is, that's somebody who holds you accountable whether you want to or not in that moment. We join D groups. We say we want to be a disciple of Christ, but we have not quite actually counted the cost. Jesus talks all about counting the cost. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 27, if you look at the screen, it says this on counting the cost. These are Jesus's words. He says in Luke 14, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's tough, man. That's tough. 
He says, for which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Verse 31, or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, this last verse, I'm telling you, you want to cut Counting the cost of Jesus, this is tough right here. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Does that mean you don't have any possessions? No, that doesn't mean you don't have any possessions. It means your possessions don't have you. Did you hear what I said? Doesn't mean you don't have any possessions. It means your possessions don't have you. It means your degree doesn't have you. God has you. You may have a degree, but that degree is for the Lord. doesn't mean you don't have a job or you don't have clothes, but it means those things don't have you. The Lord has you. And anything that you have is borrowed anyway because it was given to you by the Lord. Amen? So following Jesus is not easy. I want us to walk away with a real understanding of it so that we can be real disciples of Jesus Christ. And so in order to do this, I want us to look at Luke chapter 5. Look with me, if you will. And in your notes, I would love for you to write this down at the top. And it's this. The title tonight is... How to leave it all behind. How to leave it all behind. Some of you came in here tonight, and you are tired of living with one foot in and one foot out. Some of you came in here tonight, and there's areas of your life, like you've been a Christian for a long time, but there are areas of your life Jesus does not have lordship over because you won't submit. Tonight's the night. How to leave it all behind. Look with me at Luke chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to pick up in the life of Peter. It says this in verse 1, as the crowds were pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of their boats, which belonged to Simon, this is Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. This is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. Now, in verses 1 through 3 here, there's something to understand that's really cool. Jesus's method of ministry is the perfect method of ministry, okay? Understand this, like books that you go buy at Novel and the bookstore on how to do ministry are fantastic, but if you want to learn how to do ministry, model your method of ministry off of Jesus's method of ministry, off of Paul's method of ministry in the New Testament. Jesus has the perfect method of ministry. So the crowds are pressing in on him. They're about to collapse on him. He's at a point where he, he almost cannot speak because they're crowding on him because they want to hear the word. So when he gets into the boat to teach, I want you to understand something that's very fascinating. The Sea of Galilee is a large body of lake that's a freshwater lake, and it was surrounded by hills. There's hills all around this area. So when Jesus get in, gets into the boat, this allowed him to teach to large crowds because what would happen is his voice would carry along the water, and they would be able to hear it as they sat on the hillsides, and they listened to Jesus. So it's really this cool picture of Jesus finds a way. He came to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel, and he quite literally finds a way to preach to this entire crowd. Yet there's something amazing that's going to happen out of this. Now, this fishing boat couldn't have been more than 16 to 20 feet long. It would not have been a large boat. The way Jesus did ministry, Jesus was flexible. Jesus was resourceful in order to preach the gospel. And what I want to challenge you before we even get into our points is how flexible are you when it comes to teaching the gospel? 
Some of us really do walk around thinking that we need a stage like this to teach the gospel, to teach somebody about the Bible. College students, I got a newsflash for you. I did not start teaching the Bible up on this stage. Where I started teaching the Bible was a one-on-one discipleship relationship. That's where I started. I didn't start on a platform. I started one-on-one. I started in small life groups at the University of Memphis campus with three to five to seven people. And I would just teach, Zach, I would teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Lord used that. And so for you guys, you are often buying the lie that you need some sort of massive platform to teach people. Listen to me. We don't need Christians who crave a platform. We need Christians who crave people. Not Christians that are desperate to get up on a platform, but just Christians who are desperate to get to people. Jesus found a way. His method of ministry was perfect. Let's keep going. Look at verse 4. Now, here's where it gets very interesting. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Man, I love this passage. Peter's response, look at what he says. Master, Simon replied, man, what? Look, we've worked hard all night long. You can almost hear him saying it, can't you? We've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Verse 6, when they did this, they caught a great, great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, verse 8, reminds you of Isaiah 6. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees, an incredible moment, and said, go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. We're going to dig into this and pick this apart, but notice that the way he addressed Jesus changed. At first he said, Master, now he says, Lord. There's a great difference there. Verse 9, for he and all those who were with him were amazed at the catch of the fish they had taken. Verse 10 says, don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Verse 11, then they brought boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, I do pray that tonight you would speak to whoever it is you're trying to get through to tonight. Lord, all of us as disciples, we we want to follow you with open hearts and willing minds. And so, Lord, I pray that you would Allow us to submit any area of our life to you. Lord, I pray for anybody in here who came in here who's playing one foot in and one foot out, God, that you would just have them to get all in for you tonight. Lord, I pray for anybody in here who doesn't know you as their Savior, who does not have a personal relationship with you, that that would begin tonight, that you would save them, that they would not be ashamed to begin a relationship with you, Lord. And God, I just pray that you would move tonight. Lord, we pray that you would rebuke the enemy in the name of Jesus from this place. Lord, we love you. If that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. I got two things I want to give you very quickly. The first one is this. Number one, in order to count the cost, we have to give away your method of success for God's method of success. The very first thing that we have to do tonight, we have to give up our method, your method of success for God's method of success. What is success to you? How would you define success in your life? What I've learned in working with college students is that a lot of times, college students have a different definition of success 
than God does. And that gets us into a lot of trouble very quickly. One thing I wrote down that'll be on the screen is how you define a successful life will impact every single thing about how you live your life. Quite literally, if you want to know why you're doing the things you're doing, it all goes back to what you believe success is in your life. Most of us would never say it, right? We would never come out and say this. I don't know if I would as a college student. I don't think I would have. But a successful life to a lot of us, if we're going to be honest and real in here, is building ourselves as high as we possibly can, right? Like we, we're so ashamed, like we want to make it look like we're all put together and like, no, man, it's just all about the Lord. But our flesh so desperately craves to build ourselves up as high as we possibly can. And what that looks like is it looks like building our name. It looks like building our comfort. It looks like building our security and ultimately building up, here it is, I don't know how else to say it, our ego. Ooh, I mean, if you know your ego gets you in trouble. Have you learned that yet in life? I know you guys are in college. Y'all been living long enough. Your ego will get you in trouble. My ego has gotten me in trouble. My good friend Adam French used to say that ego stands for edging God out. Ego is edging God out. But being a disciple of Jesus is all about humility. Proverbs 11, 2 to 4 says this. When arrogance comes, disgrace follows. But with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the perversity of the treacherous destroys them. Wealth is not profitable on a day of wrath, but righteousness rescues from death. It's not fun to have your ego put in check. It's not fun. And a lot of us in this room, all of us, have an ego to a certain degree. And I might not be your favorite person after this, but I want to talk about being humbled by the Lord. Have you ever been in a place where, you, where you've been humbled by the Lord before? Oof. One time, after being a believer for five months, I prayed and I asked God to humble me. And I have not prayed it since. <laughs> because it didn't take 10 minutes, and he sent something that humbled me. I kid you not, it's part of my testimony. So now I pray, Lord, I am humbling myself before you, right? Like, I, I, Lord, let me humble myself before you because I know you know how to do it, so let me learn how to humble myself. Ego's hard, man. Ego's tough. Like, let's be honest. Like, I have an ego. You have an ego. Like, we all have egos. We want people to like us. We want people to build us up. Like, we love affirmation, man. And it's not wrong, but, like, ego's a big thing. And for Peter, man, Peter was an amazing man, but he definitely had an ego. <laughs> like, as you study Peter's life, like, Peter was a leader, but Peter was quick-tempered, right? He cut a man's ear off. Like, Peter was very much, like, that personality report. Peter was red, right? Like, Peter would make decisions very quickly. He was very quick-tempered, and his ego got him into trouble a lot of times. So when Jesus steps into his boat, think about this for a moment. When Jesus steps into his boat, that's an ego check for Peter. That's a big ego check. Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was used to building and rebuilding things. Jesus was not a fisherman. So when he steps onto Peter's boat, he's stepping into Peter's area of expertise. Understand this. Peter's the fisherman, Deco. Peter knows what he's doing out there. Even though they went all night and caught nothing, Peter's the one who knows what to do. He's the fisherman. And now you have a carpenter stepping into Peter's boat trying to call the shots. Woo! I couldn't imagine Dakota Tucker's face if I walked into ATC Fitness, <laughs> mid-lift, and started calling the shots. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I'd listen. Delaney does Tiger Elite. She gives tours at the University of Memphis. I know nothing about the University of Memphis campus. I know no historical facts about it. 
Don't know when a single building was built. I couldn't imagine those poor seniors' face if I showed up mid-tour and started calling the shots. They'd be looking at me like I'm a madman. Jesus steps into Peter's boat, understand this, and starts calling the shots. And the reason why he can is because he's not just a carpenter. (laughs) He's not just a rabbi. He's the son of God. Fully man, fully God. So when Jesus steps into your boat, Jesus calls the shots. And what's amazing is we hear that and we're like, ugh, I want to call the shots. Listen, college students, the Lord knows better than you do. The Lord knows your life and what, your, what his will is for you better than you do. You want Jesus calling the shots. You want the Lord calling the shots. If you're here tonight and you don't believe in God and you don't believe in the Bible, I understand that. I'd love to have a conversation with you because I was there too. But if you think that this is real and you think God is real and you think Jesus Christ is the Messiah and you're, you think that, you believe that, hear me. You want the Lord calling the shots of your life. You want that. And if you're lost, man, I'm telling you, I would love to have a conversation with you because there is nothing better than knowing the one who created you and put you on this earth. This is an ego check for Peter. Jesus steps into his boat and changes Peter's method of success. Some of you in this room have a really hard time living for Jesus. Let's be real, right? We don't have it all in here together. If you're in this room and you look around and you look at these believers and you think they have it all put together, you're wrong. (laughs) Ain't a single one of us in this room got it put together, including myself. When I wake up in the morning, it's just as hard for me to get in God's word as it is for you. Ain't that right, baby? (laughs) Not a single one of us belong here without the Lord. And some of you, man, living for Jesus is a grind. Like you try to read God's word, you're struggling to really like submit yourself to the word and like get something out of it. Like whatever area it is for you, I don't know if it's evangelism, if it's discipleship, if it's some sin in your life, like whatever it is for some of you, living for Jesus is hard. And here's why. You might not doubt that God loves you, but you're not willing to let Jesus call the shots. A lot of us, we know that God loves us, but we just don't know that he loves us enough to give him control. That's a lot of people's issue in this room, including myself. That's why it feels like a constant conflict in your relationship with God, because you've got one hand here and you're trying to give God one hand and God's not going to share it. God's either in full control or he's going to let you just go off into an abyss that you don't want to go in, steering yourself down a road you're going to regret. Some of you, quite literally, the rub in your life is simply that you don't trust the Lord. And I believe that for a lot of you, God may have brought you here tonight because he's trying to change your method. You might have a method to success in your life that is not godly. It doesn't matter if you've been a believer for 20 years, 15 years, 10 years, two minutes. If you got saved two minutes ago, it doesn't matter. God might have brought you here tonight to change some of the areas you're living in your life. Here's what I mean when I say method of success. Let's break this down. Let's go deeper. We all have beliefs and plans as to how we're going to live our life, right? What I mean is we have this idea in our mind of I'm going to get this degree, I'm going to work at this job, I'm going to have this family, I'm going to get married by this age, ring by spring, I'm going to hang out with these friends, I'm going to have a dog probably, a small dog, so I don't want to be too large of a dog, I'm going to have a good career, and I'm going to be known on social media, and once I get all that, like I'm going to be successful. Like we have this in our mind of, of how we can be successful. And I just tell you, uh, this is going to hurt. A lot of our plans for our lives come from us and not God. 
you don't believe me, I'll tell you, listen, your flesh apart from God is, it says this in James 3.16, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, James says, I love James, there, where there is selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. So for some of you, you have a plan as to how your life is going to be successful, but you didn't get that from the Lord, and you're wondering why you keep ending up unhappy. There's no amount of money that's going to make you happy. There is no success in your degree or your career that's going to give you that joy. You can't do it. There's no relationship. There's no human being besides Jesus Christ that is going to give you that happiness. One of the examples I wrote down is many times we believe this lie that if we can control what other people think of us, we'll be happy and we'll be successful, (laughs) which is such a endless, tiring pursuit. Some of us, if I can be honest, we watched how our parents live and we're like, okay, that's my method to success. I'm just going to do whatever my parents did. But listen, whatever your parents did that is godly, model that. But what you've seen your parents do that is not godly, why would you want to model that? You can be the one to break it. Jesus breaks all generational sin. All generational sin. And some of us in the room, if we're going to be honest, the idol of our life is success itself. For a lot of us in the room, at the end of the day, it's success in this world that keeps you from sitting in the presence of God. Success. I'll never forget when I was in the first grade, I went to Bartlett Elementary. I was a good kid in elementary school, Sam. I wasn't a bad kid by any means. But in every class, there's this one kid. You know it. They're probably in your college classes. There's that one kid that makes the teacher mad for no reason, that makes you mad for no reason. And if you can't think of that kid, <laughs> I hate to be the one to say it. If you're like, I never had one of those my whole time, whole life. Well, might have been you. Anyways, <laughs> there's always that one kid, and you love him. You share Jesus with him, but it's tough. When I was in the first grade, I never forget, my mom's watching the live stream. My mom will remember this story. I had a teacher named Miss Naaman, and she was really cool. And this kid was, like, messing with me in the middle of class, man. And I was trying to listen. I was trying to do my work. Like, I was a good kid. And he, was, he popped off, man. He said something slick to me. I don't remember what it was. But he said something slick to me. It caught me here. So I looked at him. I said, I should, look, I'm not proud of it. I didn't know the Lord. I'm not proud of it. But I looked at him. I said, man, would you shut up? <laughs> and, of course... The teacher didn't see him, but the teacher saw me. She said, Mr. Harris. (laughs) I'm like, you got to be kidding me. She was like, come up here and pull your clip. (laughs) That's what she said. That's what we had. I don't know if you went to public school, man, but we pulled clips. And it was the worst feeling ever, bro. There was a happy face. It was green. It was like a medium face like this. (laughs) That was yellow with the straight line. And then there was a red face where he's frowning. And I had to walk up there and I was so mad. I had to pull my clip and said Daniel on it. I had to pull it all the way down to the red face. Boy, I was sick. I was sick, man. I knew when I got home I was going to get beat. <laughs> I was like, oh, snap. I was like, I know I'm going to get beat. So I get on the school bus, bus 39. I'll never forget. I get on the school bus, roll the window down, trying to get some fresh air before this tail whipping. <laughs> I'm like leaning out the window, listening to the sad songs. <laughs> In the arms of an angel. <laughs> we have fun, man. We have fun in church. And uh, I get home. I walk inside. 
I should have owned it. I just start crying. <laughs> I just start bawling my eyes out. When I see my mom, I sit down on the couch. I tell my mom what happened. I'm like, man, I felt, I felt so bad because I was like, man, I am a failure. <laughs> I was like, my life is over. I'm probably done with school. Right? I'm in the first grade. I'm like, man, I made it to first grade. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life now. You know what I mean? Like, this is it, you know? I sit down talking to my mom. Like, I have failed my mom. I am a failure. This, this is terrible. And like at, at such a young age, man, these things impact you. My mom, you know, she's watching a lot. She'll she remember this. My mom said something to me in this moment that I still carry with me today. Like I've never forgotten this. My mom looks at me in this moment. It was such a crucial moment for me while I was feeling like a failure. And she looks at me in this moment. And this is what she says to me. Keegan, she says, Daniel, my love for you is not based on what you do. My love for you is based on who you are as my son. Your dad's love is based on who you are as my son. And in the first grade sitting there, man, I knew more of God's love because of how my mom loved me in, my, in that moment. So, man, it's a, it's a goofy story, but can I tell you something? Something real? Some of you are living by every success, and you're dying with every failure. Can I promise you what God's word says? God is calling you to repent. He's calling you out of your sin. There's no way around that. But God's love for you is not based on what you do. It's not based on a performance. God's love for you is based on who you are in Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, then his shed blood on the cross paid the penalty of your sin. And when God sees you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. Some of you are really walking around. Either you're not a believer and you think you got to go earn God's love one day or perform for it. And some of you are Christians and you're trying to earn God's love. That's pride. It's arrogance. You couldn't earn it. You're not performing for it. So why in the world is success your God instead of Jesus Christ being your God? The only one on the throne of your life should be the Lord because he loves you for who you are. He doesn't love you for what you can do. And that's an amazing picture. It's not Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you and for me. And man, what an amazing promise. Isaiah 54, verse 10 says this, though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Lord. I don't think this will be on the screen, but I'll just tell you. Being a disciple of Jesus means your value is not in your performance. Your value is found in the Prince of Peace. Your value and your worth is not based on what you do. It's found in Jesus Christ. Now, a great self-test with this, because I want to get practical, and I'm going to put this on the screen, is this right here? This is great. I'm telling you, this is a great self-test. Ask yourself this question. I promise you need this tonight. I need this tonight. It says this, in your life, are you doing the things you're doing because God said to? If God didn't tell you to, then who's calling the shots? Think about this for a moment. In your life, we'll keep it up on the screen for a moment. In your life, degree, career, involvement, friends, family, being here, like in your life, are you doing the things you're doing because God said to? If not, then who is calling the shots of your life? 
And man, this is so rich. Now, I have a couple of examples, of course, that I have to give you because I believe that God is a very specific God. He will speak to you right where you are. Isaiah 30, verse 21 says this, whenever you turn to the right, whenever you turn to the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way, walk in it. Say that last sentence with me. This is the way, walk in it. How many of you desire to hear God literally direct you in the way, amen? God's voice will speak to you in the sense of this is the way, walk in it. Here's an example, number one. Your degree or your job. Here it is, it'll be up on the screen. Your degree and your job. Did God guide you to that? And are you using it for his glory or your own? Your degree or your job? Is it just about making a paycheck? Man, ain't that a sad existence? Just to make a paycheck? Like, I know we got to make a living. We got to make money. It's not the root of all evil. What's the root of all evil? The love of money. We know our word. Did God guide you to it? If you guided yourself to it, pray and ask the Lord to either keep you there for his will or redirect you. What's your job for? What's your degree for? I'll give you another one, even more practical. Your friend group. Woo! After you spent time with them, are you more like Christ or are you more like the world? Golly, there's so many Christian friend groups that are not God-seeking friend groups. Ain't that a shame? I said this a couple weeks ago. I can't remember what sermon I said it in. It might have been last week during the panel when I went off on my thing. We got to get God back in our conversations. If your friend group is not talking about the things of the Lord, is your friend group living for the things of the Lord? So God bless you. After you spend time with the people in your life, do you walk away more like Christ or more like the world? Just something to think about. Give you one more. Your daily commitments. Who is becoming more known through the things that you're doing? This is a tough one. You or Christ through you? Ooh, wee. What you're doing, who's becoming more known? Listen, if you're not a believer and you're there for you, like, hey, that's what you're there for, right? At the end of the day, it's you. But if you are a believer in Christ, everywhere you go and everywhere you are, you're there to make Christ known, not you. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And some of us want to know why we're not happy in certain things. It's because we're not there for the Lord. We're there for ourselves. And we find ourselves getting caught up. At first, you see Peter's ego here. Like, you see it almost break out. Like, he, he doesn't. He throws out the net, and I'm going to talk about why. But you almost see it. Now, look at Peter's response. This is in verse 5. Peter says... We've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. Man, listen, I'm not going to add something that's not there, but you can almost see Peter gearing up to maybe say no, to maybe make an excuse, to be stubborn about it. Like, it's almost there. You can almost see him saying it, but he doesn't. And students, if I can be honest with you, there's a lot of times in my life I tell God no as well. And Riley, I regret it every single time I do. Because saying yes to God is the best yes you can say, and saying no to God is the worst no you can ever say. Amen. Sometimes we get stubborn with the Lord, too. We know what God's calling us to do. We know he's calling us to this job or that career or, or this life and these people, but we don't want to say, yes, Lord. Our yes just isn't on the table. But ultimately, Peter lets down the net. He gives away his method of success for Jesus' method of success. And I want to, talk, I want to dig deeper on this. Have you ever read this and asked why? Logically, it doesn't make sense, Right? I want you to think about this for a moment. What a lot of people don't realize when studying this text 
is the context of this passage. Peter is not a disciple officially of Jesus, but he knew Jesus. In fact, I'll go a little bit further. Peter had spoken with Jesus and had even been called a follower at this point. I'm telling you, once you look at the context, you'll be amazed. He had even seen Jesus do great miracles involving his own family. Did you know that? That before this, he had seen Jesus do a miracle with his family. If you don't believe me, it's right before this. Look with me on the screen, Luke chapter 4. It says this, verse 38 to 41. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. This is Simon Peter. Simon's mother-in-law, this is before the boat. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. Can you imagine? Peter had just witnessed that before this moment. He just witnessed Peter do a, a miracle with his mother-in-law. It says, verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Verse 41, also demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Let me make a statement. Peter is not an idiot. Peter is not throwing his net into the water for any Johnny Lou who that passes by and tells him to. Peter has seen Jesus. Peter knows Jesus to a certain degree. He's seen Jesus do something involving his own family. And it's because of that that even though he probably doesn't want to throw out the net, even though he doesn't have a real hope for what's going to happen possibly, he listens because he's seen Jesus. Can I ask you a hard question? Have you seen Jesus? As I look around the room, I know a lot of your testimonies. I know you have seen Jesus. You've seen God do great things in your life. You've seen God do great things in your family, just like Simon Peter did. Yet some of you still will not listen to Jesus Christ in your life. And our reason why for a lot of us is because of ego. Because we think we know better. The cost of following Jesus is your ego and your pride. That's what repentance literally is. It's laying down your sins and placing your faith in somebody to save you because you couldn't save yourself. As Paul says in Galatians, which, what, what began by the Spirit are you now trying to finish by the flesh? What God began to do in you through his Spirit, are you really going to try to finish out through your willpower instead of the Spirit's power? I don't know who God's speaking to tonight. I know the Lord's speaking to somebody right now. That might be him right there. <laughs> Somebody's like, man, it says Lord. <laughs> Verse of the day, you know. He says, listen. <laughs> I'll give you this quote, and then we're moving on to the final point. It says this, one of the greatest threats to our worship of Jesus is worship of self. One of the greatest threats to our worship of Jesus is worship of self. Number two, my last thing that I'm going I'm to keep, I'm gonna keep this up so you can write this down. I know many of you are still writing. But I've got one more point for you tonight <clears throat> based off of this text. And it is this. Give away your measurement of success for God's measurement of success. So as you're writing that, we're going to leave that up there. So not only, number one, give away your method of success, your how, for God's how, but you also have to give away your measurement of success 
how you define success in the end has to go to the Lord. As you're writing, can you imagine seeing all the fish? Tuck, can you imagine? Wouldn't that be crazy, wouldn't it? Jesus steps into your boat, calls the shots, and then you have more fish filling up two boats than you had all night long. Can you imagine seeing this kind of miracle? What's crazy is it's an amazing miracle, but can I tell you, Peter falling down on his knees, worshiping Jesus, doesn't really have anything to do with the fish. It's a part of it. It was a great miracle. Peter falls on his knees because of who he sees in front of him. He sees the Messiah. And I want you to understand, college students, Peter is not just seeing the miracle, he's seeing the Messiah. How we often measure success is by results. Like if we see a certain result, then that must mean success. But you have to understand, that's, that's not how it always is with the Lord. Like this is an incredible miracle. Like these fish are awesome what they have. They had nothing all night. Now they have these fish. But understand, at the end of this passage, they leave everything, right? To follow Jesus, they drop everything and leave it all. Guess what? They left the fish too. As great of a miracle as it was, they left the fish to follow Jesus. The measurement of success for this passage was not the amount of fish that they could reel in. It was not what God could do. It was who Jesus was now to them. And they had a new life call on their life. I'll give you this right here, students. Peter was not worshiping the miracle. Peter was worshiping the Messiah who caused the miracle. <laughs> and if I can give you a great action step, this should come up on the screen. Don't worship the miracles. Don't just live for what God can do for you. Worship the Messiah himself and live for who God is. We serve a God who desires the worship of our heart before the worship of our hands. We have a Messiah who looks at the motivation of what we do not just the product of what we do. And man, we serve an intentional, intimate Lord and Savior. This is why discipleship often doesn't go how it should. A D group is two to five people. You commit to reading the Bible. You commit to accountability. You get into a D group. And then it becomes a checkbox very quickly a lot of times. And the reason why is because we are so accustomed to measuring our success by checking that box. As long as I just knock out my reading, as long as I show up on time, as long as I get out without having to be too vulnerable, we think it's a successful D group. College students, discipleship is far more than that. Far more than that. At the end of your life, it's not going to matter how big your garage or your house was. Your kids, when you give them that massive garage, when you pass away, they'll be like, this is cool. They'll think of you the first time, and then it'll just be their garage, and they'll move on. Your kids will not want you to leave them a massive house. What will benefit them most is you leaving them a legacy of Christ behind. At the end of your life, it won't matter how much money you had. It won't matter how many materials you had. It won't matter how known you were. What will matter is the disciples that you have poured your life into. Because one of the most powerful things, the last thing I'll put on the screen, I believe, is one of the most powerful things about this is that Peter, here it is, I'll put this on the screen. Peter sees that Jesus has authority in the synagogue to heal the sick, to drive out demons. Yet, 
It's this miraculous catch of fish that led Peter to falling to his knees in utter worship. Have you ever asked why? Seems like the healing would have led you to it, but no, it wasn't the healing, it was the fish. He just provided a whole bunch of fish. And the reason I'll tell you is, and I know you're writing, but let me have your eyes. The reason this caused Peter to literally fall at Jesus' feet is because Jesus had just stepped into Peter's personal life. The healing was amazing to teach in the synagogue is amazing. But when Jesus steps into your personal life and shows you that he cares about you to the point where he provides fish for you, quite literally, that is what is to cause us to fall and worship. Colossians, if you're not in awe of Jesus, it might be because you have not allowed Jesus to step into your personal life. You're keep, keeping him at arm's length. Because once Jesus steps into your personal life, once you realize just how much he cares for you, You'll be in awe of him. And that's my final quote. Peter could leave everything behind to follow Jesus because he was in awe of Jesus. If you really want to follow Jesus, it's time to get in awe of Jesus.